episode number four of Justified Pursuit. Cable Smith here along with Chisholm Cook. And we're going to talk a little bit about leadership and some of the things that we're seeing in society today that are a direct offshoot of a lack of leadership. And before we do that, however, there's some things we want to clean up from last week's episode as uh, thanks for being patient with us as we're ironing out the wrinkles as Chisholm and I get going here. Um, so thanks for your patience, Chisholm. There were a couple things that I know you wanted to mention reverting back to last week's show on toxic masculinity. Yeah, thanks, Gable. Um, I think that the the five rules that we outlined on our, our website and in the, uh, the intro to this podcast could kind of cover this, but um, I think some of it's worth stating. The first thing is listening back to it you know, I try to be very thoughtful. We both try to be very thoughtful about what we're saying out here. And <clears throat> one of the things that probably should have been articulated, should have been articulated in our last episode that I think we missed an opportunity to say is as it applied to this concept of toxic masculinity and, and you know, changing manhood in this country, we talked a little bit about race and all that, but there's over 20 million uh, African-American men in the United States there's something like 500,000 in jail. That means we know for a fact there are millions and millions of good Christian or at least religious black dads out there who are taking care of their business, who really aren't well represented in media, uh -huh. um, which tends to denigrate the entire race, even when they're trying to prop them up. Um, and, and I feel like they're definitely not represented, uh, particularly by the Democratic Party. Um, so that being said, there's a podcast I've started listening to since we started this that I would refer everybody to. It's called Mo Facts with a Z, Mo M O E Facts F A C F A C T Z with uh, with Adam Curry, who's okay. like the godfather of podcasting. Check him out if you want to learn what <laughs> about the history of racism in this country and some of the things that both parties have done to hold black people back. And he kind of makes the point, there's a war on manhood. He agrees with us hundred percent on that. Yeah. He, he kind of points out it, it kind of started with a war on black men uh -huh. and, and now it's coming home to, to white men in a little bit different form, but it's a war on manhood and masculinity. Uh, we see eye to eye on that. He's way better at articulating race stuff than we are. So we're going to try to lay off that for a little bit. The other thing, like we talked about is, you know, don't hang us by little bitty mistakes. We've made several, I mentioned the Civil Rights Act of 1969. It was 64. I mentioned Roosevelt's Roughnecks. They weren't the Roughnecks. They were the Rough Riders. Little stuff like that. Um, I just asked. Oh, we mentioned Biden was, I think, for busing. Biden, Biden was against busing. Kamala Harris was trying to hang him for having our, been against uh, busing. Our Rangers That's minor league stuff. affiliate in, is, in my area is the Frisco Rough Riders. That's where that comes from. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, those little things, like I said, I mean, just try to keep the, the plot of what we're getting at. If you hear something that you disagree with and you want to send us a note to correct it or that you think is factually inaccurate, we're all ears for it. But, um, you know, we're fine moving fast and, and trying to talk about a lot of stuff. So little, yeah. little things will happen here and there. Right on, right on. So as far as today's topic, leadership, um, and this kind of, I mean, clearly – we're not going to get back into toxic masculinity. We already covered that, but leadership and the lack thereof, I think stems from, you know, it's directly correlated to masculinity and, you know, whether you believe in the Bible or not over modern times, the man has been looked at as the head of the household. Now we see these, this, this fractured nuclear family, um, which really, you know, divorce rates started rising in the 1960s. Before that, people really just didn't get divorced very often. I mean, up until like 15 years ago, we saw the spike in Chisholm. It was like six in 10 households were ending in divorce. Uh, I did see something positive that it's now it's four in 10, but I, I don't know how much of that is because of cohabitation where marriage is just taken off the table completely, you know? So I don't know if that's actually factual or not, but certainly the, uh, when, when you look at the family environment lack of leadership is i mean that's a, that's a big problem in our country and we've talked about 
and this doesn't, this isn't just in minority families. I mean, I have tons of friends growing up whose parents got divorced. And I will tell you that those kids, they had, I'm not going to say they had more problems. They had a tougher road than say you or I probably did. I'm trying to be careful talking about this because I don't want people to think that I'm bagging on kids that grew up in, in a fractured family environment because that's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying, statistically speaking, they had a tougher time. Yeah. I mean, I think that most of those folks would acknowledge that. It doesn't mean inherently that they're like damaged for life or anything like that, but absolutely not. You know, I think, I think most children, but let me touch on something you said, unless we say otherwise, we're, we're not talking about race minorities or differences. We're talking about humans, right? Yeah. And this divorce problem you're touching on is a, is a human problem. It's an American problem. You know, it may impact certain groups more than others, but it's a problem across our society, right? Absolutely. And I think anybody who came from a, uh, a two-house family, a broken home, however you want to phrase it, would say they, they would like to find a, a mate and, and stay with that person and raise their children in one household because they see the benefit there. I mean, I, you know, I haven't polled those folks, but, but that would be my guess, right? Right. Um, I, to me, <clears throat> you said something to start with, which was, you know, the tie between leadership and masculine virtue. And there's certainly a ton of truth to that, but I guess to me, and we did touch on this in the last one a little bit. Um, it's the combination of a man and a woman that brings the right balance uh, to humanity, right? We're, we're, we're two sides of the same coin. Yeah. We represent two polar ends Oh, uh, you know, if we were created in God's image, male and female, he created us in God's image. We're, we are godly when we are united as one and bring the, the virtues from both of those perspectives to the same task, right? So I, I guess what I'm saying is that there are plenty of great female leaders today and throughout history um, that would be, you know, that, you, that are feminine women, right? <clears throat> I, I think that every great male leader needs the balance of a strong woman, strong godly woman with him in order to really grasp that mantle and to be an effective leader. Well, right? to, you know, and for anyone that's not a religious person, you could take religion completely out of it and you're still talking, look at it from a Buddhist perspective or Eastern um philosophy of yin and yang i mean like you said it's that balance absolutely right you don't even have right. to be a christian to get that you you know it is that balance 100 percent. there is that may be a great place to take the conversation at some point but there is the what you just said like the concept of yin and yang of of masculinity and femininity of chaos and order chaos i think it's a negative connotation but it doesn't have to be negative that all of that is basically at the foundational level of every belief system <laughs> up until postmodernism and you know this crazy thing that we have our societies gripped by now but certainly all all ancient religions have that in common right but so or you know ancient mythologies all have that that concept in common that that you need these polar opposites i mean it's like the universe was constructed that way, right? right. The planet has, has two poles. There, there's, our politics have two poles. There's, there's a reason for that. Humanity has sort of these, these two poles, or, or even every aspect of humanity probably ends up breaking down having sort of two poles. And the, the way to find the right path forward is to have a voice for both poles, right? And then, mm -hmm. and then, for, for people who have leadership capabilities, you know, leadership skills, talents, to lead folks somewhere from that middle perspective that takes into account both poles, right? Right, right. Yeah. You no, know, my, my parents, specifically my dad, he always told me, be a leader, don't be a follower. Um, and I think that 
and why I'm bringing this up is because I think leadership is, it's a learned trait. You don't just grow up and have the capabilities to be a great leader. And, and that's why the home, I think the home environment is so important because they're not teaching leadership in colleges or universities. They're just not. Um, so where are people, where are you learning how to become a leader? Is it through your father? Is it your grandfather? Is it from a coach? Um, your football coach. I mean, there's, there's a lot of those individuals are great leaders of adolescent individuals, male or female. But I think that, that, that it's important to, to realize that there's not some class you can take in college. It's just going to, it's going to be called leadership and you're just going to all of a sudden know how to be a leader of men. I, I would say that I think some people are born with a certain skill set that allows them to be leaders. But to your point, <clears throat> it's not the snap of a finger. You still have to learn to lead. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the ways you learn to lead is by taking the lessons you, you know, that you're taught by all the people you just named. But, but again, let's not just look at it. I think we've talked about this. We feel like there's a, that with this war on manhood, war on masculinity that we've touched on, that that has suppressed a, a lot of male leadership and created a vacuum there where we need it, where we, where we need men to step up into. Right. Mm -hmm. um, at, at the same time, many of the qualities and, and lessons that a man needs to be a leader will also come from mother, female teacher, you know, sister, aunt, whatever. Right. Because women represent 50% of the population. Right. So it's, it is something that you learn from all of your life experiences, but to your point, I think it has to start in the home. And if you're fortunate, privileged, quote unquote, to be, you know, raised in a complete household with a, a masculine and feminine figure, both teaching you, but very importantly, that those two are on the same page as they do so, right? Mm -hmm. To the extent they certainly, I mean, there's always going to be some conflict, right? But you know, I mentioned on one of these podcasts that I've listened to, I've read a lot of books and listened to a lot of guidance on, you know, fatherhood in general, being a dad of girls in particular. And it's a pretty well understood fact, I guess, or observation, maybe a better word in social sciences that, that women, mothers are protective. Dads encourage kids to take on risk. You need both of those. Mm -hmm. Absolutely need both of those to create a complete person. If you don't have a father who lets you bump your head, scratch your knee, whatever, right, in your home, and you're only being, you know, sheltered, coddled, uh, you know, coddled, mothered, and, and again, none of this means that every mom is like that, right? But we're talking in generalities. Anybody who's listening has an open mind will understand this then you've, you've been molded to just sort of live in fear. Right. There's a place for fear, for sure. There's danger all throughout the world. And mom teaches you to see that. Dad teaches you to face it. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You can't get there without both of those influences. And if you do come from a home where that wasn't, available, then hopefully you get that, like you talked about, from some of the other influences in your life, teachers, coaches, professors. I, I was late to getting started to this, like we talked about, because I was meeting the youth pastor at our church. My daughter is now part of the youth group as a sixth grader, my oldest. Mm -hmm. And because I'm trying to take advantage of whatever skills I may have to be a leader within my community, within my church, I've volunteered to take part in, in that, that program. And I basically was tasked with middle school boys. The middle school boys are my small group. So I don't, you know, I go to the same place that my daughter does, but I don't interact with her. I interact with a bunch of <laughs> strangers kids. Right. 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 But like, I can and tell I, you I remember five years. I, and I want to just tell you, because I grew up in the church, you know, every, 
Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, choir and youth group on Wednesday night. And uh, my Sunday school teachers, uh, and this bodes well for, for your endeavor, um, all us left a lasting impression. On my, I mean, I remember all of them. I remember one, one that stands out was, uh, and you know, our, our mutual friend, David Morgan, his dad, Tim, was my sixth grade Sunday school teacher. And, and this has nothing to do with leadership, but I remember very vividly the day Mickey Mantle died was like the day that was a huge deal for him. And, uh, and, that, and, and so maybe it's sad that I don't remember the lesson that day, but I remember Mickey Mantle dying and being there in class and, and, they, and they all left a, you know, a small fingerprint on, on shaping me as a young man, for sure. Yeah, well, in the tie there, maybe the Mickey Mantle part itself isn't necessarily the, you know, thread directly to leadership, but the role Mr. Morgan played in your life was so important and foundational that that pain he was suffering, I guess Mantle being presumably one of his, you know, sports heroes, Im- impacted you, right? If you didn't care about that man, yeah, you know, you wouldn't have, you w- it wouldn't be something that you remembered so well. And, you know... It was an example, I think, of the, maybe subconsciously at least, of the kind of the yang to the yin, right? There's this tough guy that you got outdoors with all the time, broken up about losing one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived, right? So yeah. there's something touching to that, right? Um, and I was so funny that that's exactly where you went because I was thinking that one of the inspirations, I was happy to be, assigned to this middle school uh middle school boys group because for many years now in our sort of spiritual journey together over the last five six seven eight years whatever and through some of the other influences in my life other podcasts and things i listen to it's become pretty clear to me that just because i don't have boys doesn't mean that i can't that i i don't have a duty to step up as a member of society and help lead boys Right. There's something to the idea of it takes a village. Right. That there, There's some there's some real truth really in that. Good. And so I, I want to be able to be part of shaping and influencing boys to become proper virtuous men. And part of that influence for me was going hunting with you and David, meeting him and getting uh, familiar with, I guess, y'all's story and your history together, in particular, his dad leading those men's wilderness retreats like. Right. That has that was not lost on me, man. A big part of my current worldview and the way I see what's going on and how we can improve humanity is from that right there. That that was so foundational for you. Um, you know, there were certainly men outside of my father who were who left tremendous impressions on me. But um, you know, our whole wilderness ministry concept, right? Like that that all like tied together in a way that was in my God working in me, right? But um, Anyway, so, so I, you know, I embraced this opportunity with these boys and I told the guy that's leading it, like, I'm excited to, you know, I don't, I don't have sons. So, but, but I do feel like every man, every, every father, regardless of whether you have boys or not, I guess it doesn't matter if you have children or not. Yeah. Take an opportunity to teach a boy or a girl. It doesn't make any difference, but I think especially boys right now, what it means to be a man. That's, that's leadership right? Passing wisdom from one generation to the next is a form of leadership. And if we don't have men teaching boys how to be men, then we have, they're not being led to manhood and they're not going to become men. It's almost, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's impossible, but you know, if, if you're a boy who manages to get into his twenties without ever having had a virtuous masculine man to model after, I don't know how you get there. You know, I, I just don't like yeah. And, and, and then especially if that void is being filled with, you know, the media narrative of, quote, toxic masculinity, man, you want to talk about lost souls, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that, 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 that's damaging to a, to a boy's psyche to be told because he doesn't have a proper, you know, masculine leader to look to that you know, men create all these ills. And if that's all you're getting told and there's no balance to that, you end up this like self self-loathing, you know, again, just, just, just lost 
probably toxic human, right? Right. Because you have, you have all the traits of a man, all the physical traits of a man, presumably all the hormonal traits of manhood, testosterone, et cetera, but no governing principles by which to apply those things. If you don't know, like we talked about being able to uh, tame those virtues as far as yeah, right. masculinity um, is concerned. But, but that un, when untamed, right. they can be dangerous, violent, sadistic. Uh, I mean, you look at people like Hitler for a prime example. Right. Uh, certainly, he had some masculine traits, now, but they weren't good ones. Well, yeah, they weren't properly harnessed and reined, right? right. And I, I think that's so part of the reason we're having this conversation is because when I listened back to that last podcast, you touched on the leadership thing, and I was too wrapped up in a line of thought I was on to hone in on it. But it's it's what we're talking about right now, which is that <clears throat> that that masculinity real masculinity, true regulated harness and trained masculinity is what passes down generation to generation. And, you know, the, the idea of toxic masculinity is on its face a fallacy. It's, it's, it's males. i you know, won't even refer them to them as men. I don't care what age they are. Yeah. Men who behave in the way that the, that, that, that the left is referring to when they use the term toxic masculinity they're not men. Nobody ever trained them and taught them to be men. Nobody trained them and taught them how to use all of the, the traits of being a man that can lead to the, the violence and the pain and the things that, that they, they point to, yeah. to, to, to shepherd that and, and rein it in and apply those energies uh, to, to good. That's, and it's, and it's hilarious, right? Because this, this war on fatherhood. Let's call, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's a feminist <clears throat> movement. Uh, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's a, basically a generation of, of people experimenting with de-emphasizing the father's role in the nuclear family. And so that's, that's how you get from point A to point B. You're right. Yeah. And there's been multiple waves to feminism. I'm not sure which wave is responsible for, demonizing manhood in the first place but uh again and some of those ways were good let's be clear i mean like right, dude the first one was necessary right, right. absolutely yeah yes it's we needed modern, women modern to be able to vote that we're talking about here so. yeah but i mean even you know man i've got a podcast of feminists that i listen to they're a little older they live through like you know the feminist movements of the 50s and 60s so, so maybe to your point they're they're not modern Mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly see the virtue of both masculinity and femininity, right? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I consider m- my wife to be a feminist, I guess, in a classical sense in that um, she's her own woman, and I've got four daughters, so I want to be their own women, and I want them to know they can do anything they want in this world. Anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm teaching them to hunt and fish, you know, things that are probably not considered traditionally feminine activities, but they love it, man. And I love seeing um, them do it, man. It's, it's awesome. And, uh, thanks. I, I gotta, it. I gotta tell you a real a quick note. My Frankie, my, I think she's going to be the hunter out of the two twins. She came up to me the other day and said, uh, dad, I know Henry shot his first deer when he was seven, but I want to do it when I'm six. <laughs> 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 man that's awesome oh mine are so competitive about that stuff yeah it's uh i'm having to hold them back for sure but mm-hmm. um but it's fun and you know at the same time my house is full of you know pink and purple and you know rainbows and princess movies right so they, it's not as though they're all just you know little heathen tomboys they're, right. they're still girls yeah um anyway the point just being like there's no reason Men and women are equal, period, and that we're both humans. We're different, and the claim we're not is nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is that we're more the same than we're different. It's on the extremes where we're different, right? Right. But that still has to be respected. And, and not only respected, but embraced, right? It's, again, where 
balance and harmony in human existence comes from. The margin, the difference between men and women is, is where we complete each other. It's not the parts where we're the same. It's the parts where we're different mm-hmm. that create a whole, right? And like I said, can, can then therefore raise a child to understand broadly what it means to be an adult, male or man or woman, you know? Yeah. Um, I I think I want to take it in a different direction right now, because when you look at in in, like in the business world, I think leadership, I mean, it's gotta be the most commonly researched or read about theme in business. It's gotta be. Everyone wants to thinks that if I could be a leader, I could be making a lot of money, you know, that they're, they're connecting the dots there thinking that leadership means economic um, success. But also when you look at like these titles of these books and I've looked, I, I haven't, I'll be honest with you. Wild at heart is like something that I would look to for like leadership because it gets me back to that place as a man, which then I can take into the rest of the world, whether that's with my family, uh, my business, whatever. But this term power, I see power on all of these books, all these headlines, power, power, power. And to me, power doesn't mean leadership. Going back to Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, they had power, but they weren't leaders. And, and I think that society wants you to believe if you have power, you're a leader. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Man, um, leaders definitely find themselves in positions of power. What they do with it from there, to me, determines whether they are, can still be viewed as leaders or whether they end up tyrants. You know, one of the things we mentioned at the end of the last episode talking about Roosevelt was how he would bring in these, you know, martial arts experts and get his butt kicked every day. So I researched that some since that conversation too. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I loved reading about it. Yeah. Just these guys come in and just beat the crap out of him every day. Right. And, And like I mentioned, he, he viewed that as humbling. Yeah. It was necessary to his role as a leader to take an ass kicking every now and then to just remember that, that he was there to serve, not to Lord over. Right. Right. Um, To your point, as a person uh, ascends in leadership, the more bootlickers he surrounds himself, he or she surround themselves with, the more convinced they become of their wisdom of the, of their being right or wrong. And the less input, honest input they get about the directions that they're going. A real leader is somebody who counsels and consults and takes in different viewpoints, you know? Yeah. I, I, I hope that's the direction we're working in and trying to have some of these, you know, conversations where at times we have a slightly different viewpoint and we vet it out and we give credit where appropriate to people who have a different worldview than us. Right. And try to address it. But it's not, um, leadership is not an exercise of power. Real leadership is enrolling your team, however narrow or broadly that may be, narrow or broadly defined that might be, toward a common goal, right? Um, it's definitely not just the exercise of, of power and, and dominion. That, that again, that, that's, the, that's the work of tyrants. Yeah, and you can use deceit or coercion or any other you know, list of undesirable traits to acquire power. And, and I guess it's part of that question is what ends are you trying to serve? To me, a leader is leading on behalf of those that may be following him or her, not leading for their own agenda or for their own outcome, mm-hmm. right? There, there shouldn't be anything purely selfish in real leadership. You know, if you're leading a group of people to your own financial, personal gain, whatever, to your own grip upon power, you know, at their expense, particularly, you know, if it's good for you, but it's also good for everybody else, then cool. It's a win-win, right? But that's not what you're getting at. I don't think, right. It's Mm. people who want to just be on top and dictate the rules. That's not. And we'll use manipulation or coercion or whatever else to get what they want. Right. Or force. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I just found it interesting because you read, you look at these book titles and, and all of them say power. And to me, it's just not, that's not what being a leader really is. Of course, being a great leader could lead to power, but they're kind of putting the cart before the horse in a lot of these leadership style 
books. Well, and, and is it actually a quote from Stan Lee's Spider-Man comics that with great power comes great responsibility? Or did he get that from somewhere else? I've never bothered looking that up. I want to say that it was someone more like Winston Churchill, um, but we'll have to look that up. Comic books are all a bunch of uh, representations of life. What's the, their... Ah, dang, I'm blanking on the word. Um, doesn't matter. Let, I don't care who it was. There's tremendous wisdom in that, that notion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the idea that once you have power, however you, you end up gaining it, exercising of that power, leading from that position is a tremendous responsibility, right? Um, I, you know, unless the book is about regulating power for a greater good, I I agree with you. That's not, there's nothing inherent in being powerful that means you're a leader. You're a leader if you, um, you know, have power yet still defer that power. So, right. so then let's talk about the, the obvious, the most glaring example of lack of leadership. All you have to do is look at American politics today. And I, don't, I, I, I tend to believe that if we had stricter term limits, um, get career politicians out of D.C., then people would be there for a more sincere reason. You know, one of leadership. Like, hey, I, I want to make a difference and I've only got – two, four, six years, whatever it is to do it. And then my, my time is up. I think now you, you, our political system lends to that coarse nature of, of power where there are no checks and balances. You, maybe you ran initially because your heart was in it, but once you got fat, rich, and happy, you know, they don't really care. I mean, I, I truly believe that that's part of the problem. You're a hundred percent right. Um, Real quick before I forget it again, the word I was looking for archetype, like mm. comic books, heroes are archetypes of heroes. You can see the same types of stories in the Bible, but back to your point, you're hundred percent right. All those elected positions, if they don't have a limit to how many times they can get reelected, it's just a never ending election cycle for them, especially in the house of representatives where they're elected every two years. Dude, yeah. As soon as they get elected this November, they're going to be working on their 20, uh, 2020, Two, I guess, campaigns, and yeah. I mean, look at Pelosi, look at Biden, look at McConnell, look at all these career politicians. I mean, on both sides of the yeah. aisle, they dude, Joe Biden is all about Senate power. For almost about half power. a They're century. Leaders. Could you imagine telling your your kids, "Hey, uh, look at that politician over there. That's a great example of how you should model your life after." Hell no, there ain't no one of them. Maybe Dan Crenshaw, but other than him, right now I'm looking at like, do you think parents are saying, hey, uh, little girl, you need to look at AOC as a great example of, of what you should try to be like in this world? Well, there are definitely plenty of parents who are saying that. Oh, my God. Um, Those parents unfortunate. are hard and feathered. You know, I, I'd bring it a little closer, closer to home for us. Um, our governorship in Texas does not have any term limits. And so... Rick Perry, he of the good hair, served for, I think, over 12 years as the governor of this state. And, you know, one of the things I'd like to touch on here and there, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what people don't know. I don't know how well people understand the, 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 the structure of state and local federal, federal and state governments in particular and the interplay and all that. But, you know, a governor, just like the president is in charge of the executive branch of a state. So all of the administrative agencies, the, you know, Texas workforce commission, the Texas commission on environmental quality, where I used to work, the, uh, TxDOT, the DOT, right. Right. And yeah, all the sister agencies in other states, they all basically report to the governor. Some of those agencies are, are headed up by elected officials, but the majority of them, much like we see with, you know, at the federal level, are appointed by the executive, by the governor, by the president, right? And they have a term that they serve. So the fact that the governor of Texas has no term limits and somebody like Rick Perry can spend over a decade in that office means that each one of those agencies I just described Mm-hmm. which have way more influence on day-to-day Texans lives than 
I mean, well, than our legislature does, um, than anything really that the federal government does. Those are people who are impacting how you operate your business. What's acceptable in, you know, in, in terms of your household, things like the child protection, whatever. <clears throat> he was there for so long, every single governor appointed position in the entire Texas government, not only was held by a governor, by a Rick Perry appointee, but he was there so long, a lot of them had turned over two and three times. Hmm. So he had had a chance to try somebody out. And if they didn't tow whatever line he was expecting, he could just put another guy in there. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to just totally take the guy to task, but you know, if you were paying attention at the time, there was lots and lots of, uh, accusations of, 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 you know, sort of bad faith dealings, right? Lots and lots of political interests who had <clears throat> obviously his ear and because of the like complete and comprehensive grip he had on Texas's government, it was almost like a kingship. Right. And it was terrible because, you know, he was being challenged, um, but by several people that last couple of go arounds, he didn't ever, I don't think he ever won more than 40% of the vote. I, I might be wrong about that, but I know in the last couple of election cycles, he didn't because there'd be, you know, at the, at the state level, you'd have five different candidates. Right. And, um, so that it would get so divided up. It was more like a primary than a, than a, a governor general election, right. Where you just had a Democrat and a Republican, but you know, despite not really being able to even crack, certainly not 50% of the vote, he maintained this, power for a long, long time. And somebody, maybe Kay Bailey Hutchison, I think she ran against him, um, threw out there the idea of a constitutional amendment to limit the governorship. And to me, that's a it's no necessary at state, dude, I mean, yeah. for sure. But it, at the federal and state level, you just, to your point, another great saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? If you get to spend 45 years in the U.S. Senate or over a decade as the governor of Texas, you have established a level of power that, I mean, getting biblical again, David rose up as a shepherd, was made king of the, you know, the Hebrews by God Almighty, and that power ultimately got to his head and led to his downfall. Mm -hmm. He abused it. And, you know, I, it would take one seriously, dude, I, mean, I guess we, we touched on this with Roosevelt. He could have gotten reelected. A, technically, he could have served a third term. Right. Because of right. coming in after an assassination. And he chose not to. How many. Virtuous. Dude, for sure. And uh, for the record, yes, we know that Teddy wrote many racist things. I mentioned he was a progressive like Woodrow Wilson. They had some terrible views a hundred years ago. So, okay. Caveat, we acknowledge that. Right. But let's carve that out of this conversation. How many American politicians today would say, I'm going to step down because I know I have too much power. Zero. There's not one. I don't, I don't feel like there is. At least Ted Cruz, love him or hate him indifferent. At least he's brought to the forefront, the idea of term limits, which I got to give the guy all the credit for. You think that went over very well and he brought that up? I mean, do you hear anybody talking about it? Uh, <laughs> Seriously? No. Yeah. It right. was like a, no, a whimper and then it was gone. To your point, if we just required it, problem is <clears throat> the politicians would have to be the one to sign off on it. Right. But if we required it, I, I think you're right. I think that more people, fewer of the politicians who get into it with the right intentions could be corrupted because they wouldn't be seeking the position for life. Right. And maybe you'd have some people who are willing to put their day-to-day -day life on pause for two, four, six years, whatever to serve knowing that there's an end date to that. You know, yep. I, uh, Paul Ryan, actually, here's one example. Paul Ryan, somebody's probably going to want to claim that he stepped down because he wasn't going to win re-election. I don't think that that's the case. Paul Ryan felt like he had done his time as leader of the House of, Repub of, the House of Representatives, uh, you know, the majority and minority leader, if I recall correctly. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I think we do see those folks step down voluntarily from time to time if it was required 
then it would basically eliminate the incentives to just seek re-election in perpetuity by those who would choose to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess my point is the ones who under the current structure voluntarily step down are the kinds that we need to stay. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, Ted, yeah. please don't go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I think it, it, leadership in this country is very stale. There's no, no doubt about that. And I think the way to, uh, infuse it infuse some life into it and and from a just a consumer uh, you know as an american citizen what are we getting excited about do, who do we look to and say that is a great leader i mean they're, they're few and far between and that's depressing i guess i don't know the answer i certainly don't know the answer chisholm but it's got to start in the early stages of someone's life for whatever reason you know, we've talked about the broken family. We've talked about uh, feminism and that movement impacting it. But it, it starts there and we just don't have it. We just don't see it like we, I mean, I don't think we see it like we did 50 years ago with uh, young charismatic people like JFK, for example. That was someone people could gravitate towards. Yeah. And you know what else he was? Some was might argue hero? Obama too. You know, I, it wasn't my cup of tea, but he certainly... I think Obama would be a cool guy to play around a golf with. Have I mentioned this on the podcast yet that I actually met him and sat and chatted with him while he ate his breakfast one day? Mm -mm. He's like the coolest guy I'd ever been around. And frankly, I voted for him the first go around because I was convinced he was a moderate, good dude. And then I didn't vote for his reelection. And I realized in retrospect that I had been snowed by a front. (laughs) Right. Right, But to your point, yeah, he's, Really cool guy to be around. Um, the thing you mentioned with JFK, and I was sort of thinking as you were saying that, is one of the places I would kind of always start when I'm going to select a, a politician for any purpose is a record of service, particularly United States military service, right? But there are other forms of service that I, you know, would support from you know lifelong civilians. The point being service for political <laughs> political uh, ambitions alone or political position alone to me don't create a, a life of service, right? Or even infer, indicate that somebody has that heart. Joining the military voluntarily indicates to me, for the most part, somebody who's interested in serving their country, right? And I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Voluntarily, yes, 100%. I don't think that there's, from from what I can tell, many ways I can't think of a of an institution that cranks out better leaders than the military mm-hmm. right and particularly when we're talking about running the United States of America a big chunk of which is our military and our engagements overseas through that military right mm-hmm. understanding those issues um yeah I you know you mentioned Crenshaw when I listen to that guy or, or Jocko Willink I hear people who want to lead, not control. Right. Right. That's what I hear when I listen to those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the same summer when I met Barack Obama, I happened to listen to a speech from you know, former general and secretary of state Colin Powell. And he talked during that speech about how people are often surprised to meet him and realize how, again, cool he is. Right. They kind of expect this, the guy you would see in, in fatigues, yeah, during you know the uh, you know Desert Storm days, <clears throat> and you know in his role as Secretary of State, but it, in reality, he had almost a, a politician's uh, you know charm and charisma about him. And, and he explained, you know, when you're you know top brass in the United States military, your job is not to just bark orders down. Your job is to enroll everyone in a common strategy and vision. So, you know, it's not an exercise in power. It's an exercise. That's it's an exercise in leadership, right? Getting everybody to see the path forward, giving them the opportunity to contribute to what that path forward looks like, getting in a room together, hammering it out. But then before leaving the room, making sure everybody is focused on the mission and heading that direction, whether they're, idea got integrated into it or not 
right? That he explained that was the objective of him as a general. And yeah. that's why he comes off in a setting like I got to see him speak in as a totally different human being than you see on TV. Well, <clears throat> you know, and one thing I would say, this is, this is kind of weird to say, I think, but why Trump was elected and why he has, I think, been the right man for the job is because he, to be honest with you, he didn't have those, the leadership skills that I think one would need to run the country. But uh, I think that's why I, I think we needed to shake the foundation there. And the fact that he just doesn't give a shit yeah. about anything other than, I think he loves America. I mean, I, I, I really do. Um, and his motives for running might've been power. It might've been ego. Who knows? But at the end of the day, I, I see a guy who seems to care about the country uh, immensely, whether he had the, the leadership skills. I don't think he did because of the way he deals with the press and the way he runs his own social media accounts. He's kind of a troll, which I don't think is, those are leader, you know, qualities of a bona fide leader. Um, but I think he was the stepping stone to prepare us for the next, whatever the next part of American history is. Um, you know, I think he was the right man for the job at the time, despite his yeah. uh, deficiencies as a leader. Yeah. More and more, it seems like each month I agree with that. And w what I would refer to him as, and it's not my thought, I got it from a number of other influences. He's a disruptor. And yeah. the trajectory of the country, um, it, was, it was time for some disruption. Uh, this, uh, just last week, I think he, was in, he signed an executive order about something called critical race theory being basically promoted and promulgated within U.S. governmental institutions, agencies, et cetera, right? Yeah, he signed something to prevent it. Right. From being critical, race, yeah. critical race theory, I mean, I don't have yeah. all no, of the synopsis I'm for I, it. I've read, the, yeah. I read the, the press release on that. Yeah, I mean, they'll basically claim, like, if there's a disparity, so if African Americans make up 13% of the population, if they don't make up 13% of any subpopulation, like STEM applicants to college right uh or, or whatever then it's it's a sign of racism it's not a sign of maybe as a community them having other interests right mm -hmm. or something at a sort of a local level where maybe as children they're not being exposed to stem and and, and encouraged to head that direction whatever it would may, may be right they're just like oh it's just racism like somebody's sitting there looking and saying oh uh don't want any black people here you know that's the way mm -hmm. that that critical race that's the, basically, the, as I understand it, sort of the, the roots of it, right? That any racial discrepancy is itself racism. It's like saying that, you know, the fact that there aren't as many women on those crabbing boats in the North Sea from Deadliest Catch proves that it's misogynist. No, it's not. <laughs> women don't want to do that job. <laughs> right. Right. You know? yeah. And <clears throat> anyway, so him going after that uh, is, a, is a prime example of, it's undermining, I mean, it's the, it's the 1619 project, right? It's this idea that the United States of America was actually founded on racism in, you know, and, and we, that the 1776 signing of the Declaration of Independence was to further racism, even though within three years, like four colonies had already abolished racism using the Declaration of Independence own words to do so. And yeah, it took another, you know, almost hundred years to get rid of it at a national level, but it's, it's just complete garbage, right? To say that the mm -hmm. country was founded to, to, in, to maintain slavery in perpetuity. It's, it's, it's nonsense, right? But point being, that being taught and sort of infiltrating our actual government, what could be more corrosive to governance of the United States than that? Than, than that it's evil at its core to start with, right? I mean... Right. Again, speaking of Obama, I think he was the one who said when it came to illegal immigration, you either have a country or you don't. Countries have borders. And, you know, countries, if you're a member of a citizen of a country, you should be able to look and say, here's a lot of stuff we need to work on. Here's a lot of history where we really screwed up. But we still believe that it's fundamentally good and worth having. Critical race theory says otherwise. So it's got no place in the government. Right. And anyway, so back to the point. At a bare minimum, he's a disruptor at a time when a disruptor was definitely needed. Now, yeah. with disruption comes a certain level of chaos. 
which we talked about in the, I think the very first episode, which we're seeing yeah. right now for sure. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, uh, unfortunately, man, I think we're, uh, we're about out of time for today. Uh, my, my challenge to anyone listening, and I, I'm sure you would second this is, is in your life, in your everyday life, whether it's with your own kids, whether it's with your church group, uh, whether you just sign up to be a mentor or a tutor, there's, the options are limitless, but lead. If it's one person or if it's a group of people, it's certainly a worthwhile endeavor. And, and I think one that it, and maybe it's selfish to do it for self-fulfillment, but I think it feels good to be a leader. Yeah, and, and in particular, I would say you know, men. Positively lead. impacting other lives, you know? Yes, men in particular step up and lead and don't be bullied into this idea that because men have, you know, historically had the power that that means that uh, we no longer have a place in modern society. That's, that's, that's crap. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, I feel like in the last hundred years, we've gotten a lot farther and a lot closer to something like true equality. But right now, there are major forces that have a, a considerable grip on major institutions in our country that would just prefer to flip the power upside down rather than really go for something called equality, mm-hmm. right? And embrace your masculinity, step up and lead, like you said. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Justified Pursuit. For Chisholm Cook, I'm Cable Smith. We'll see you guys next week. Just-